Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Good evening and welcome to Amplify, a telephone talk show that looks at life from a religious perspective. I'm Father Ron Lengwin, hoping that you have felt the warmth of God's love in your life this day, especially the joy you feel when you share God's love with others. I said those words. Every week for, for decades, always open my program that way. Never are they truer than they are right now. We need to feel the warmth of God's love, but especially what you feel when you share God's love with others. A lot of people doing that, and they deserve the gratitude they're being shown for being so heroic. Building downtown now, city-county buildings, red, white, and blue, and for all of the responders and nurses and and doctors. And we've heard throughout the world, they come out and applaud New York City, applaud all their healthcare workers lined up with fire trucks. And it's nice that they, they see that it's a one way to pay back. Um, we've been blinded to so much of the evil that exists on earth. Someone might laugh at that and say, you got to be kidding. With all that's been going on, not just now, but before. You think we didn't notice it? And I'm saying, we didn't notice this. We didn't expect this. We're thinking about it worldwide. One can only wonder, what are its effects throughout the universe? Perhaps. I'm not a scientist. I don't know. But where does all this bad air they're talking about in droplets go. Are we affecting the universe beyond Earth itself? So many people are doing their part. They've stepped up. People have come out of retirement to help people. What about us? What do we do? Those of us who are told to stay in We don't have the skills that some other people have, but you know what we have the skill to do? You know what we have the heart to do? We have the heart to pray. No one's going to know about it, but they may feel the effects and wonder what happened. Oh, that was so fortunate that happened. What a great accident, without realizing that it was really your love, powerful energy that love is, that you were sending to someone doesn't have to be someone you know. 
some unknown people, some unknown person, someone you've seen on television, someone you know. And I have a couple of people in New York City that, that I have uh, prayed for in a special way. In the end, God intends us to be one, and hopefully somehow we'll come out of this in some way. Now, the program this week um, was really set up weeks ago. I think it must have been even before, had to be before the virus. And, of course, it's Holy Week, a very special week for, for Christians. And what might you talk about this week? There's a lot of approaches you could take, but tonight... We're going to talk about the devil. We're going to talk about the evil that exists in the world. And where does that evil come from? What powers does it have and not and not have? But as we do each week, I'd like to begin this program with a story that is based on faith and formed with imagination, one that hopefully fits the theme of the evening. While Jesus was alone in the desert, and after he had fasted for many months, a storm arose. He cried out to his father, Why have you led me here and exposed me to this danger? The voice within him answered, I am here, within you. Jesus replied, But I, I do not see you. The Heavenly Father formed a circle of fire around Jesus. The flames whipped by the wind seemed to reach to the sky. Again, Jesus cried out and said, You're frightening me. I'm afraid that the fire will consume me. And again, a voice within him said, I am here within you. Then rain began to fall. It too surrounded Jesus, but did not touch him. Jesus cried out, Father, Father, have mercy on me. Am I not your son? The voice within answered, Have the winds looked at you? Has the water consumed you? Has the fire touched you? Jesus cried out, No, but I'm frightened and alone. An angel appeared to Jesus, walking through the wind, the fire, and finally through the water. When the angel reached him, Jesus was still filled with fear, but there were no tears in his eyes. The angel said, Son of the Most High, shed but one tear for me. And a tear came. Then the angel said, Let me feel your heart. And his heart was exposed. Let me touch your hand, the angel asked, and Jesus extended it. The angel said to Jesus, You were not afraid to give me these three gifts given to you by your father. Now walk with me. And she led him through the water, which touched him but did not overwhelm him, through the flames which did not burn him, and through the winds which did not sting him. Jesus fell down upon his knees and cried out, Father, I am loved. And an inner voice said to him, you have lacked faith, but fear not. Even though fear is more consuming than these three great forces of nature, stand up and be strong, because the evil one is more fearsome than these three. It cannot be seen, but I tell you this, if you are not strong and filled with faith in the face of fear, if you are not compassionate where there is suffering, 
If you do not love where there is hatred, these elements of the earth will overwhelm you. Jesus cried out, Father, I am only human. The Father extended his hands toward Jesus, and Jesus felt his love. Again, Jesus cried out, I am love. The Father within answered, All men and all of creation are mine. They are to be loved, cared for, and must one day return to me. You, my son, must share your love through your words and actions. As Jesus stood and watched, the storm consumed the fire, and all was washed clean by the water. He said to the angel, Where has it all gone? The angel sat down, a tear began to form in her eye, and she said, This is the tear you gave to me. This is the heart, and this is the hand you gave to me. I give them back to you, and they shall be remembered until the end of time. Your tears will intermingle with the tears of many others. Your heart shall bleed and give love to many. And your hands shall be a source of comfort and strength to many. Jesus looked up into the heavens and cried out, Father, I am your Son. Give me the words to speak your truths. Give me the strength to do your will. Give me your love so that I may endure all that I must experience. The page was turned in the life of Jesus, and he knew that he was truly the Son of God. So many things in that story that I could pick out. But our guest this evening writes in the introduction to her book titled Chrysostom's Devil, Demons, the Will and Virtue in Patristic Soteriology. Don't worry about the last part. We're going to talk about the devil tonight. But she writes in the introduction to her book, When I was baptized in the United Methodist Church, my parents renounced the spiritual forces of wickedness and rejected the quote-unquote evil powers of this world on my behalf. My Catholic friends got to renounce quote-unquote Satan and all his pomp at their daughter's baptism last year, and I watched my Orthodox friends spit on the devil when their son was baptized. Even in less liturgical traditions, there is at baptism a recognition of the turn away from sin and toward Christ. So those of us who have been baptized have rejected evil, perhaps even Satan, by name. But dare I say, most of us do not give this a second thought. I've never heard my parents bring it up. In fact, when I was interviewing for faculty positions with my work on John Chrysostom's demonology, I was advised by one of my professors to have an answer prepared for when deans and provosts asked me whether I believed in the devil. The realm of the demonic is something that a lot of modern Western church, including the more charismatic branches, is uncomfortable with. Demons make us nervous in this part of the world. Dr. Samantha Miller is Assistant Professor of History of the History of Christianity at Anderson University. She's taught uh, 
courses on early church history, the history of exegesis and spiritual formation. Uh, and we are told that when she is not teaching or doing research, you can find her enjoying life outdoors, hiking, canoeing, camping, biking, or just reading a good novel under a tree. Sounds so pleasant. Dr. Samantha Miller, welcome to Amplify. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to have you. Um, why the interest in St. John Chrysostom? Who is he a little bit, and why interested in him? He lived in the 4th century, 400, long time ago. Yeah, John. I fell in love with John Chrysostom when I was in college, actually. Ah. Um, and he has been a dear friend of mine ever since. Um, if the communion of saints is a thing, and we... Uh, it doesn't matter that he's been dead for 1,600 years. I consider him a dear friend. Um, yeah, so John Chrysostom lives 4th century. He's uh, 347 to 407, and he uh, was a bishop and a monk and a theologian and a, uh, just all the things all, all at once. There, there weren't a lot of distinctions the way that we do now where some people are pastors and some are theologians, and everyone was everything. Um, and his John Chrysostom is not his last name. It's a nickname, uh, the Golden Mouth. So he was known for his preaching. Um, sometimes I talk about him as sort of the fourth century version of, the, of Billy Graham, right? People would come to yes. hear him preach. And, uh, and he, oh, he, he such a life. Um, he uh, wanted to be uh, an ascetic and a monk living in the mountains outside. He was in Antioch, and uh, the way the geography is, the mountains sort of right at the edge of the city, and so the monks, instead of going out to the desert, would go up in these mountains, and his mother wouldn't let him, so he had to wait. So when she passed, he went out to be a monk, um, and he was something of an intense personality, so he fasted uh, to extreme measures. It said that he never sat down. He stood for two years. Uh, he memorized the whole New Testament, half of the Old um, but he, he was so stringent in these practices that he injured his health, and he had to go back to the city. And when he went back to the city, um, folks there in the church uh, recognized his gifts, and they kidnapped him and ordained him, huh. um, because that's how you used to ordain people yes. in the 4th century, um, which I sometimes think would be a great practice still. But uh, he, so he uh, is ordained a priest in the church, and then uh, eventually bishop of Constantinople, sort of the head of the Eastern Church. And uh, as he was not a politician, so uh, he's not not at all good at being a politician, which is a problem when you're the the head of the church in Constantinople. So the emperor and the empress were part of his congregation, and he once called out, actually probably more than once, called out the empress in his sermons while she was in the congregation. He said she was too concerned about her vanity and all of that. Um, Empresses don't like it when you do that when they're in the congregation, so she had him exiled. And shortly after that, there was some sort of big misfortune where uh, we're not sure if it was a miscarriage or an earthquake or something like that, but she's convinced it's God's punishment for having exiled Chrysostom, so she calls him back like a month later. Um, Chrysostom does it again. He calls her out for, for whatever sin again while she's in the congregation, and so she exiled him again. And he was out uh, much longer that time, and during one of the winters, the, the forced march was just too much, and he actually died on the march. So those are, it, it, I say that partly because that's just, it's good to know 
the kind of personality he was, uh, intense, and as, we, as we're going to talk about his understandings of virtue and demons and this sort of thing, when he says virtue is easy, he means it. Um, yes. He's just a really intense guy who sees very black and white, very right and wrong, and just going to hold everyone to account on that. So he preaches excuse me, a lot about virtue, a lot about demons, a lot about uh, almsgiving in particular, but that's uh, a little bit of who he was. Yeah. Um, yeah, we're going to get, get to all of sorry. that, I think. And, yeah. and one of the personal things I wanted to bring up is you mentioned when I was reading about you that you, you, um, your interest in the early church had something to do with Dr. Gerald Sitzer. And uh, he, was a, he was a guest on our program twice, and I remember hearing that name. So I looked, looked him up because I have like some pack, past materials. And I remember what a wonderful guest he was, and you seem to— uh, address him with a great deal of respect also. Yes. So he's actually the one who introduced me to John Chrysostom. He uh, had visited, uh, I went to Hope College as an undergraduate, and he had visited, he's an alum from Hope, and so had visited, was giving a lecture, and was speaking to a small group I was part of for students who were thinking about seminary. And he was telling us about what he was doing, and he was reading Chrysostom's On the Priesthood with some pastors where he was uh, where he is up mm-hmm. in Spokane, and said, you know, if you ever want just a really good book on pastoral theology, On the Priesthood is the book. So the kind of student I was as a sophomore, uh, went to the library the next day, got the book, and just absolutely fell in love with it and with Chrysostom and just met a kindred spirit who sort of understood the the the, the gravity of the call to to mm-hmm. ministry of, of whatever sort it ends up being. And I hadn't yet met someone like that who was, who was more afraid of the call than awed by it. And the rest is history, and, yes. Tell, yeah, tell, us, tell us, let's jump to right to, what were some of his basic beliefs about demons? He lived in a—he, uh, of course, had a congregation. We heard about one woman in that congregation. I'm sure there are a lot nicer people. Uh, and uh, Christian Jews and pagans had different beliefs about the spirit, spirit world in his time. But what is it that he believed so Chrysostom seems so basically demonology is broken down into three categories. Where do demons come from? What are they? Like what is the nature of like ontologically in their essence, what are they? And the activities that demons do. So Chrysostom is he writes very little about the first two categories. What he does say about where they come from is he along with the the basic narrative of his time is that Satan was the head demon, um, demons as uh, the head demon, and that he was an angel who fell through some sort of sin. And Chrysostom is unclear on what the most of the time he says it's pride, but sometimes he says it's laziness or um, something. That sort of every once in a while, if he's preaching on a sin, he'll say that was the thing that caused the devil to fall. It's sort of a, the way that preachers do, and. But for the most part, he thinks it's it's pride, as as the general narrative goes. So the demons were angels who fell. The the demons being yes. the devil's minions, but all angels who fell. So they are ontologically like in their essence, they are angels. It's that they are incurably evil. And the big thing for him is that they are created beings. They're spiritual. They're real beings in a way that um, a lot of modern Western folk don't don't really know what to do with that. Charismatic Christians have categories for these things and are much more apt to say, yeah, demons are real beings, 
spiritual beings um, in league with with evil, with the devil. But Chrysostom would go that direction. And so they're real beings, they're spiritual, they're evil, they have agency is the biggest thing for him. So when he's going to, when he does talk about demons and their origin, he mostly talks about how they chose to become evil. And we'll talk about the yeah, free will, particular huh? faculty. Yeah, this this free will sense, this uh, self determination. They have this ability to choose, and they chose that for themselves. It wasn't that they because his big thing is he doesn't want to say that they were created or that their nature is evil. Yeah, we have like um, a less than half a minute before we take our first break, and they're out to get. Were they out to get us? Was like the third question, right? Yes. So the third one is they are out to get. They're out to cause as much destruction as possible. Um, and to hinder humanity's salvation, to, to separate us from God. And um, he talks a whole lot, we're going to get to it, about how much real power they have and they don't have, and that depended on uh, whether you believe what a Jew believed or what a, what you believed a pagan believed. And he, he, he spoke a whole lot about uh, our faith and how strong our faith needed to be. And uh, I want to get back after we, we have this break and ask you how you believe this book can help us today. So we're going to take this break, and then we'll be right back. Welcome back to uh, Amplify. Our guest this evening is Dr. Samantha Miller. We're talking about a book, Chrysostom's Devil. For us Catholics, we would recognize him as St. Chrysostom. Man, I was, we always said, with a golden tongue. And I remember as a young boy wondering how a man could have a golden tongue. And it took a while for me to to understand that. And but I've heard some wonderful preachers since then and know exactly what they mean. But um, Samantha, as we were leaving I, uh, for the break, I indicated that uh, um, what would you say to young generations who wonder why we would place any credence or attribute any wisdom from someone who lived so long ago, who died in the, in the four hundreds? How can this book help us today? I think in general, it's good to listen to our elders. I think in general, um, we have a, a, an addiction to novelty at this point, and we think anyone who lived that long ago must have been an idiot. But often they're much wiser and much closer to God than we are, especially those of us those in the church who have been named saints. We recognize a wisdom. So there's that aspect. Um, and C.S. Lewis talks about how they can, people in different time periods can point out our cultural blind spots, things that we just can't notice. But I think this book gets us into what does it mean we are really talking about when we talk about demons and the devil? Is it just whether demons exist or not? Which it usually isn't really the question. Usually the question is, why am I suffering? And who's to blame? And what do I do about it? And Chrysostom is also talking about, most often when he's talking about demons, he's talking about how they can't actually keep us from being virtuous. And so I think this book is offering us a way to think about virtue and what does it mean to live a truly good and excellent life. And I think the one place that I particularly go to right now is that he, in terms of thinking about the other, he's people are afraid that demons are causing any sort of suffering in their life. And he says, well, you should really be more worried about yourself because you're the only person who can actually damage your own soul through sin. And I think a lot of times right now we are, we tend to fear the other. And when we fear the other, we tend to demonize the other sort of take it metaphorically. And when we, when we sin by 
by saying or doing things to another person that we fear or for, or for whatever reason that we hate, we are actually doing more damage to ourselves than they might would be doing to us if they were to sin against us because they're not truly damaging our souls in that is where criticism goes. So that's one place that I usually take it. Yeah, and um, I believe you say the demons are limited, created beings, unable to harm a human being unless given permission by God and the person, him or herself, that we can only harm ourselves by choosing to follow him. Um, and so let's let's jump to today. You, as you indicated, Chrysostom said that um, we are called to a virtuous living. You know, what kind of of living is that? And is is there any relationship? This is well. This is kind of a jump. Maybe it's really two questions. Uh, is there any relationship to what is going on today? The whole of Christian life then is a contest with Satan. Would that apply in some way? To our present struggles. Well, sure. Whether Christians are all over the spectrum now about whether the whether Satan is an actual being or not, but yeah, the Christian life. I mean, if if you're human and you're living right now, my guess is you understand that life is a struggle, and and that's just across the board, whether Christian or not. But for Christendom, it's about how you're reacting to the struggle, what you're doing in it. And so for him, when he, his image of, his image of struggle, well, Christian life as a struggle against the devil is, is, is an image he uses when he's uh, giving homilies to people about to be baptized, about to enter the Christian life. And his whole idea is, look, you're, you're entering the arena, the sort of gladiatorial arena of Rome, and you're going in, the devil is your opponent. But don't worry, Christ in his incarnation, life, death, resurrection has actually bound the devil hand and foot. So the devil's really just hobbling around. And also, even if you mess up and fall, Christ is, is going to pick you up and put you back on your feet, and he's helping you to win all the same time that he's judging the contest. I want to get so specific so, as, the, as the coronavirus. Yeah, so, um, so Chrysostom's demonology comes often out of his theodicy, out of his uh, answer to the question of why is there struggle. So so the coronavirus is happening, and it's this struggle, this thing, where is this coming from? And Chrysostom would say, wherever it's coming from, God is allowing it, and it's about how we live in it. So we need to struggle against whatever temptations there are in it, temptations to, say, go hoard all the toilet paper. Yes. That would be to go, to go hoard all the toilet paper while someone else needs it is to sin, and that's the choice you're making. It's not about the suffering you're experiencing. That's not what's doing damage to us. It's your choices in that. Are you aiming to follow Christ, or are you aiming to follow the devil? And you said earlier that um, for Chrysostom, it's a call to virtuous living. What kind of living is that, and what are the virtues, and why are they so important? For Chrysostom, well, the chief virtue is this one would think was just almsgiving, making sure you're taking care of the poor around us. But virtuous living more broadly is living the way that God intended for us to live when God created us. It's it's a, an aim at returning to Eden, which for him is is in a is a life in, lived always with God, always 
in the presence of God, always in the the company of God, and and that would be a life where your attachments to worldly things are, are ordered properly. So he's aiming, he's taking this from the monastic tradition, where the goal is apatheia, this detachment to things of the world for the purpose of being ultimately attached to God. So he calls this living the heavenly life on earth. Imagine what God has created us to be and to live in that. And so he's never really specific about what those virtues are unless he's preaching against particular sins or for almsgiving. Um, Other particulars, like he would say, don't go to the theater, don't go to the races, don't participate in these particular things that, that bring about temptation. But he's not terribly specific. It's mostly about this trying to live in the presence of God all the time. And that's the life he wants us to aim at. So we have the ability to choose what is good and thus uh, defeat the devil. And of course, the devil made me do it. We know is is no excuse that neither God nor the devil is responsible for suffering. We are, but we, uh, but can't we be influenced in one way or another? Um, the Christian life we, we've been talking about is a struggle with the devil for virtue and salvation. What do we know about the devil? What do you mean? Um, in terms of uh, who the devil is and why he does what he does. So the devil is, for Christendom, the devil was an angel who became prideful and turned away from God and in doing so fell and became uh, a tempter to humans on earth and according to some tradition, is jealous of humans and that and the relationship, the specific and special relationship that humans have with God. And the devil tries to separate them from that at all at all costs. And for Christendom, the the only tools the devil actually has are temptation and deception. That's all the devil can do. And he's gonna do all of it. He's gonna tempt and he's gonna deceive all the time. There is room for causing suffering in instances, so Chrysostom talks a lot about Job, and in that story, the devil is given permission, asks for, and is given permission to take away Job's children and livestock, and and then even afflict Job with illness and sores and and bodily disease and things like that. The devil can do those things with permission from God, but that's the devil cannot cause sin. Chrysostom's got a problem with people in his congregation who keep thinking the devil made me do this. The devil made me sin. I the guess devil can tempt and deceive. Yeah, what I guess what I was getting at was the one goal is to prevent our salvation, to throw us, as it were, out of heaven. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's the language that Chrysostom uses. He says Satan is eager to cast us out of heaven, which is interesting because it sort of assumes then that we're already living the heavenly life. We're already in heaven. It's ours to lose. Um, yes. And um, when a person is tempted— uh, he or she is supposed to remember that uh, she has spit in the devil's face. I love that that introduction to to your book. Uh, I didn't know that the Orthodox did that, for example, uh, and uh, it, it just it just has such a, a when you try to picture it, it it just seems so powerful. Now, were his beliefs uh, considered to be new at the time he lived, or were, did he take his beliefs from from others? He was pretty 
standard as things go. The thing that makes him unique is he's blending two traditions at once. So his understanding of he's, he's uh, Nicene Orthodox. He, he is preaching just after the Council of Constantinople when they've sort of dis, um, not defined, but described and outlined our Trinitarian belief at that point. But then in terms of all the demons and virtue and, and whatnot, he is using the language of the sort of academic theologians of the time, the philosophical language that Gregory of Nyssa and others are using and about what a person is, what a human is, and how they operate, and um, what virtue is, those sorts of things. But then he's blending it with the tradition of the desert uh, monastics, the desert ascetics who are out, mm-hmm. and they are talking about what it means to be human as a struggle with the devil in particular. So Christendom is adding this demonological language with this other language that's already happening. So he's doing a new thing, but he's, it's more of a, a rearranging and a way of talking about it than it is a new idea itself. And as a matter of fact, he rejected what many of his people believed. And... Uh... Say a little bit about what others believed. Uh, you don't have to get into it too far, but Jews and the pagans. What was he? What was it he had to speak against? So the pagans, in particular, were the demons were these spirits. So everyone in that world, everyone in the fourth century Greco-Roman world, believed that there were these spirits. That the world was just populated by spirits. It was just not a question. And the pagans would say that some of those spirits were evil, but some of those spirits were also good or neutral. There were just different ways of thinking about them. And the Jews and the pagans and some of the popular Christians, not so much the preachers, but the people in the congregations, had this understanding of magic, of ways of thinking oh, of this. Nice. So they would have amulets or um, other sorts of uh, objects or inscriptions or whatever, and they would be ways of controlling these spirits. So you could go and you could get an amulet that would protect you against miscarriages. Or in some cases, you could go put curses on other people. You could want someone else to have a miscarriage. Or you could use one of these and have one of the demons help you help someone fall in love with you or whatever. But there was a sense of controlling it. And the Jews in particular were known for their magic. It was this tradition at the time. But all, all Jews, pagans, and Christians in that world were participating to one extent or another. And that was um, the milieu that his the 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 culture that his congregation lived in, and his culture his congregation was part of this, and he was sort of preaching against that, saying, "No, here's like whatever's going on with them. The demons aren't the thing. It's you. You need to pay attention to." And um, some believe that the demons were invisible uh, spiritual beings, and some believe that they could project an image that they had the ability to do that, even though they were spiritual beings and that they could appear in any size or shape, and I think uh, even Chrysostom said might uh, might appear as a glow with smoldering fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that they could. So then and you get traditions of, say, Antony in the Desert, where the devil shows up as a woman, projects the image of a woman, or uh, a young boy, or any number of other temptations or um, or in Antony's case, just getting physically beat up by the demon. So mm-hmm. having some sort of body of some case. Yeah, there's different ways of thinking about that too. 
And the demons have the ability to instigate sin, don't they? Temptations, for example. Yeah, in terms of temptation, and and but again, to be careful to say that the demons can't actually force a person against their will to sin. Yes. Um, did they perform exorcisms in those day? I mean, um, exorcism is viewed in different ways. As Catholics, we 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 perform exorcisms um, after a lot of careful uh, examination. Uh, it's more than just uh, to pray. There's an actual ritual. Were there exorcisms at that time that people performed? Oh, yes. Yes. In fact, exorcisms were part of the preparation for baptism. So preparation for baptism at that time was usually a three-year process, and it was uh, a long period of instruction and period of apprenticing to mentors and to older Christians and all sorts of other stuff going on. But part of it was this ritual, they would visit the exorcists at a certain number of times along the way, and more intensely, baptisms usually took place on Easter, or the Easter Vigil at that point, and, or Easter, but the Easter Vigil they would spend, and they would go to the exorcist a couple different times during Holy Week. So exorcisms were, were just part of the ritual, even in terms of that. And then there would have been also, there was recognition of demon possession, which is a separate category from temptation for them. Demon possession would have been, the demon has actually taken over that ability to choose. And Christendom actually treats demon possession in mm-hmm. the same category as mental illness. Different, They're different things. So he, he's not trying, you don't get to say of Christendom, well, he just didn't know that was mental illness. He makes a, a distinction between the two, but it's the same category in terms of not being responsible for the sin because there's Demons have taken over the ability to choose, and so there would have been exorcisms for that, absolutely. And um, at that time, there were a lot of uh, magic texts that were a common trade to control them and keep them from causing harm. So it was it was a business, too, wasn't it? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And that's the part where the—that's the business that the—the the business angle that the Jews were particularly known for in the ancient world. People—all people— Pagans and Christians also would go to them because they were the ones who had this particular skill. And this uh, week we um, we hear about uh, Judas's betrayal, and um, I don't know if it was Origen's belief or I can't remember now reading the book, uh, but Ju- Judas's betrayal was considered to be an act of a demon. Yeah, there were several several different writers would go with that. And part of it is, I can't remember which gospel account, I think it's Luke, but it could be John, where it actually, one of the, the text says, well, Satan entered Judas there at the Last Supper. Yes. Um, I wish I could remember which gospel it is, but that's, that's where they get that idea, so that this was instigated by, it, Christendom even has a point where Christ's crucifixion was instigated at some level by the devil, um, if only at the level of temptation or um, sort of giving idea to it or something, but it was meant as a hindrance, meant mm-hmm. meant to take away people's salvation, humanity's salvation. And the important point is that they're evil by nat- they are not evil by nature, but by by choice. And uh, you present the uh, beliefs of various people, the teachings like Origen, uh, the Cappadocians, who believe that Satan is the chief demon who 
was created good by God, but fell by pride or envy, as you said earlier in the program. Uh, but they identified the pagan gods as demons and uh, said that uh, God won victory over demons in Christ and that God allowed demons still to roam the earth, willing evil, and that God would have final victory over the demons at the end of all things, that God allowed humans to cooperate with demons to do evil, and therefore demons take full advantage of it with constant temptation. And we face that even as Christians today, don't we? Oh, absolutely. That's, that's the part, whether, whatever you think about whether demons exist, it's uh, pretty empirically verifiable that humans are cooperating with evil. And, 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 and even just in our own experience, we experience temptation a lot, I dare say, all the time. And, and so we, that's just a part of, part of the story, part of, that's part mm-hmm. of our existence. That's the struggle, as Christensen would say, with the devil. That's the struggle to be virtuous. And since demons could cause such uh, harm, such enormous harm, the natural response was fear, wasn't it? For many yes. people, not everyone. Yes, yeah, because demons were understood to be these beings who could cause miscarriages or illnesses or poverty or uh, earthquakes or whatever whatever might be going, whatever might be happening, or pandemics, that people were, were terrified of these demons. And Chrysostom's comment all the time is, don't fear them. They can't do you any real harm, which is the point I sometimes wonder how reassuring that actually was, just because this off, this seems like real harm to me often. And I, I imagine the suffering to people who are in it seems like real mm-hmm. harm. And he's trying to make a distinction that, that real harm is actually sin. It's, it's harm that you that damages your salvation rather than just your existence. So you're right. I'm going to read us out to our break. Uh, Chris, reading from your book, Christians knew the demons were wholly evil and there was no placating them, but they did try to gain God's protection from them. If the theologians whose writings are extant can be believed, one thing can be said that the average Christian feared demons. Average, quote-unquote, Christians felt powerless against demons, unable to resist not only the physical harms they did could bring, but also the temptation they wrought. It's this fear and its resulting lack of understanding and trust in the gospel that Christism would address. <laughs> 